Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November 25th, 2014, and this is episode 1472 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a, a good one for you today. Hey, do you know what this week is? This is Thanksgiving week, and this is where we go into a wind down for the rest of the week. I have expert council member Chef Keith Snow going to be on the line with me in just a minute to tell you how to make Thanksgiving awesome. We're not going to talk about survival topics other than, hey, surviving Thanksgiving and in-laws and stuff like that, maybe a little bit. But this is going to be a lighthearted show on how to cook awesome Thanksgiving food. Why? Because it's freaking Thanksgiving and we need a dead gun break. That's why. Uh, I mean, we could talk about the Ferguson new riots and all of that stuff. We can talk about that next week. We are going to do the Thanksgiving cooking show today. Tomorrow I will do a survivalist view of Thanksgiving, uh, a show that's been done every year. This will be the sixth year that it's been done. It's just a rendition that I did originally in the car all the way back in 2008. It's kind of a Hollywood tradition for a lot of listeners. And then Jack is off. That's right, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I will be back on Cyber Monday non-cybering, simply podcasting once again. And we can talk about all the other hoopla that's going on and the burning buildings in Ferguson and stuff like that today. Let's talk about not burning a turkey. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of those sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one. It's going to be brief because this is not by planning. It's simply by happenstance. Chef Keith Snow and Harvest Eating. That's right. Chef Keith ended up with the heart with the uh, sponsorship uh, spot today on his own show. He's awesome. You're going to hear how awesome he is in just a minute. But if you check out HarvestEating.com, you'll find great tips for Thanksgiving cooking year round, cooking seasonally, cooking locally. Awesome seasoning. Awesome sausage. It's just awesome sauce all around. Next up today, herbs of a different kind, Western botanicals. If I'm not feeling well, the first thing I reach for is an herbal supplement of some sort. I try to match my body's you know, inadequacies to the, to the herb that helps to, to shore those up. And sometimes I even do a little bit of what I call replacement therapy, and it's not what I generally like to do, but for some things it just works. If I'm achy from being in the garden... Hey, I'm reaching for uh, the harvest, uh, I'm sorry, the harvest eating, the Western Botanicals anti-inflammatory formula is made up primarily of turmeric and some other good stuff. If i got a headache, they have a pain formula that's awesome as well. It's, it contains valerian. Uh, those are just two examples. Also, if I'm kind of aching in their joints, they have a really great ointment, a deep heating ointment. They just have great stuff. And, you know, if I end up with a, a yield sign in my spleen in a car wreck, I want to go to a trauma doctor. I really want to go to the trauma room. I want to go to surgery. I want to have my life saved. If I get cancer... I'm not completely sold on all modern cancer therapies, but I'm examining all the options, and I'm going to fight it with a lot of traditional medicine built into it, but uh, or uh, modern medicine built into it. But if I have these chronic issues or these aches and pains, I go to herbs first. You should, too. If you're not sure what to do, call Western Botanicals. They have real people that really care about you, will help you make the right decisions for your needs, including if you say, well, uh, I've got a yield side of my spleen. What do I do? They're going to go, go to the freaking emergency room. Anyway, check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. If it's legal and herbal, they have it, I promise you. That's how extensive their collection of herbal remedies and whole herbs and herbal preparation products is. Next up today, let us take a look at the year that was the episode, 1472. Got three for you today. Banking on Italy, Leonardo joins an artist guild 
first printed book on astronomy. I'm going to read about Leonardo because I think he's a cool cat. And you can read the other ones if you want to at TSP Wiki where Alex Shrugged does these history segments for us. Leonardo da Vinci joins the Guild of Artists of Florence. This is quite a feat since he is only 22 years old. This is also a time when we would begin such works as the Baptism of Christ and his with his teacher Andre del Vasuccio. Many paintings of the day were collaborative works with pupils painting backgrounds and minor characters in a scene or taking on extra work that the master didn't have time for. At this point, Leonardo is definitely doing the grunt work. If he wants to strike out on his own, he must be a member of the guild. Of course, it costs money to join, and it's not so much the guild that gets your work, but that not being in the guild definitely locks you out of work. My take by Alex Shrugs. Renaissance artists are praised for their marvelous works, And their work is marvelous. It, it's also work. There are no photographs, so people commission artists to produce sculptures, and especially portraits. It's considered a job like a wedding photographer is today. If you want a mail-order bride from a baron a hundred miles away, you don't want to travel. You commission an artist to travel the distance to paint the portrait of your potential bride. He brings it back so you can make sure you aren't being shipped to an ugly stepsister. And when you make sure it's your money, you, you, and you make sure it's your money paying for the artist. Otherwise, it's like a dating site. The picture may bear no resemblance to the actual person. For those worried about equality of the sex, yes, women send artists to paint the portrait of their potential husbands too. Um, you know, actually what it makes me think of is permaculture and guilds. Right, So I think one of the misunderstandings when you hear the word guild is that a guild is to create this miraculous, amazing abundance in permaculture. It's actually to control things. See, if we put in plants at every layer in a, in a forest, for instance, we lock out we lock out the plants we don't want. If we don't put a vine in that we do want, we'll get a vine that we don't want. If we don't put an herbaceous layer in that we do want, we'll get an herbaceous layer that we don't want. If we leave a space empty, nature will send in a weed. So gilding in professions is designed to lock people out and to control how many get in to avoid oversaturation of a market and keep prices artificially high. Gilding in permaculture or gardening, if you want to just call it gardening, is controlling everything that you're doing by planting that which you desire to the exclusion of that which you do not and to create a mutually supportive environment. So the artists support each other if they let you in or the stonemasons support each other if they let you in or the fishermen support each other if they let you in. You see how that works? That's what gilding's all about. That's where it comes from. That's basically the predecessor of modern unions, but there you go. So gilding, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, next up, it is time for the Bob Wells Plant of the Week. Since we're talking about gilding, one of the things we could gild with, especially in northeastern woodland mimics, is a pawpaw tree. Now, what is a pawpaw? If you talk to Jet Lawton, uh, they're talking about something more like a papaya. In the northern uh, United States, a pawpaw tree is like also known as a custard apple. It's pretty amazing fruit. It's highly adaptable from zone 4 to zone 8. And its delicious taste is like that of vanilla custard. 
The tree grows to about 25 feet tall. If you let it get that big, they can be pruned in urban environments. The fruit is three to six inches long. They work best if you plant two for pollination. Some people refer to the pawpaw as a miracle fruit and has attributed it to good health. The tree makes an attractive ornamental tree as well. Pawpaw plants are easy to grow. Find this plant and more at Bob Worrell's Nursery. Bob Worrell's Nursery specializes in anything edible, fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. You can find it all at BobWorrell'sNursery.com. And remember, if you are a member of my support brigade, you get 10% off everything you order from Bob Wells. Order 100 trees and, well, that 10% tends to add up pretty quick. Check them out today, BobWellsNursery.com. On that note, do consider joining the MSB. That's all I'm going to say about that today so we can get into uh, the main topic of today's show, which is Surviving Thanksgiving with Chef Keith Snow. Hey, Chef Keith, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. It's good to be with you, man. Hey, I'm glad to have you here today. I mean, the Super Bowl's in February, but the Super Bowl for chefs is this week, right? I mean, this is your day, Thanksgiving. This is like the whole year revolves around the big meal. So, uh, you know, we have you on today to talk about Thanksgiving and, and making it a pleasant experience. And let's start out, well, let's start out with, hey, can you give people a little bit of your background? I know you're on the expert council and all, but we're picking up new listeners every day. Um, who are you? Where'd you come from? And how'd you go from chef in the big, big time to chef your own way? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I'll, I'll try to keep it short. Well, I cooked for about 25 years in restaurants, um, in all different various positions and, uh, wound up eventually, uh, in Colorado in the high country as the, uh, the head chef of a big ski resort, um, really big ski resort. And at that time, we had our first daughter that was uh, at about 9,800 feet above sea level. And I just knew I didn't want to raise her in, in such a sort of hellish condition where eight months of the year, it seems like winter. So um, I decided to buy a farm in North Carolina, which was uh, totally odd. But bought a farm in North Carolina and moved the family there about a year later and uh, started to get into local foods. This was back in 2003 right during the uh, low-carb movement. So I uh, was getting into local foods, planting gardens, meeting farmers, drinking raw milk. We had chickens and dairy goats, horses, and eventually we got uh, Jersey cows and just really was plugged into uh, the local food movement and started my my blog and website, HarvestEating.com, and uh, eventually started filming a lot of videos and wound up doing a, a television show that, that aired on national cable TV. And I was approached by a few publishers to do a cookbook, which I did, the Harvest Eating Cookbook. You can find that on Amazon. And uh, throughout that whole time, I just kept building up the website and producing a lot of content for people, you know, surrounded with the theme of, uh, you know, farm to table, local food, supporting farmers, and trying to do as much as you can to avoid the standard traps that people find themselves in with regards to food. So, um, you know, that was way back when I think I started the, the website in about 2005. And along the way, I've, I've you know, traveled internationally and done a lot of um, big events in association with promoting my cookbook. And I founded the Slow Food South Carolina chapter in Greenville and just had a lot of really neat experiences and um, more Recently, about a couple of years ago, I started doing some radio, trying to follow in your footsteps, Jack. One day I might have a tenth of your downloads, but we uh, we do a little show called the Harvest Eating Podcast, and, and it's uh, really taking off, and we've got a lot of very loyal listeners, and things are good. 
Awesome, awesome, man. So, um, you know, Thanksgiving is the the big the big day, like I said, for anybody that's a cook. Uh, but for a lot of people, it can be an intimidating day. I mean, you have, uh, especially like you have situations where like the family always went to so-and-so's place for Thanksgiving and finally they're going to go to the other place. And it might be for a, a, a housewife or a house husband or just, I mean, I cook. I'm not a house husband, but I cook. But, but for the first time, you know, people are coming to eat a turkey that you've made. And for many people, they've never made a turkey or they've never really made a turkey that they're satisfied with. It's not really that hard, but I think there's a lot of that if you just do the directions on the packaging or listen to the morning show that day and follow whatever they tell you on, you know, Wake Up America or whatever the hell they call it, it is more likely that you will end up with a turkey you're not happy with than a turkey you're happy with. But it really doesn't have to be that way. So can you talk about, like, if you want to make the perfect turkey, what do you do? Yeah, that's... um what an age-old problem! And it's, the other day on the on my radio show, I I described sort of what you were getting at. Um, you know the pressure that somebody can be under to cook a meal because most people aren't prepared to cook meals for large. I mean, sometimes people fifteen, sixteen, ten. These are large numbers of people, and there's a lot of logistics to pull that off. And then when you're talking about a turkey, which is most people's turkey, I would, I would imagine, would be 18 to 25 pounds. You're talking about a massive uh, piece of meat, and people are just not, maybe they grill steaks, maybe they do chicken breast, uh, a pork loin here and there, but they're not used to cooking something with that much mass. So the combination of these factors, along with the social pressure, and sometimes you, you've got family members that can come over that, um, you know, they, they can be, they don't make things easier, and I guess we'll, we'll leave it at that. And I always picture the, you know, the 28-year-old uh, housewife who the in-laws are coming over and some, some other relatives and guests and um, older people. And they're, they're going to be looking at that turkey. And they're, they're going to, even though they're there to enjoy, there's, people are, tend to be judgmental. So there's a lot of pressure and a lot of things that go, can go wrong when you cook a turkey. So some basic, basic ground rules. Number one, this show is going to air on Tuesday. If your frozen turkey isn't out of the oven... You're in deep doo-doo to start with. so Hold on, hold on. Let's correct you there. If it's not out of the, refri- or the freezer. Right. It's not out of the oven. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you're right. If it's not out of the freezer and it hasn't been out for a day, you're probably in trouble because something, and this is something that people just can't seem to fathom, but a 20-pound turkey that's frozen um, is very difficult. It takes a long time to defrost it, and you do not want to get into the situation where you have to run it under cold water in the sink. And, Jack, I've heard every story um, that you can imagine because of what I do, and I tell people, if you need help, Keith at HarvestEating.com. I'm here to help anybody. And I've had folks um, email me on Thanksgiving morning. I got the turkey. It's frozen. I've got it in a steamer. Uh, How long should I steam it before I put it in the oven? Yeah. And I'm just thinking, oh, no. So some basic things. Make sure your turkey is defrosted. And I, I would add to that, Keith, if you if you delayed and it's now Wednesday morning and your turkey's in the freezer, I would brave the hell that is the grocery store and go see if they have any fresh thawed turkeys left. And I would take that turkey that's still in the freezer and leave it there and cook it for Christmas. Yeah, it's about to get I, I would I would throw up the white flag of surrender if you have a large frozen bird on on Wednesday morning, it's not going to thaw safely. No, unless you do the 
water trick and you'd prefer not to. No, I agree. And I was, I was about to add that. If you're, if you're to that point, just go out and buy a fresh turkey. Um, at least in the stores around here, they're, they're still very plentiful and it's always good to have an extra one anyway. But let's assume you're starting with a defrosted turkey. Um, when you cook that thing on Thanksgiving Day, some people put it in the oven early. Some people want to eat at dinner time. Regardless, wake up early in the morning, take it out, take it out of the bag, put it in your roasting dish right, you know, right away, and let it start to warm up. Because the closer you can get that thing to room temperature, and it still will not happen, but the closer it gets to room temperature, the better chance that you're going to have some even cooking. So once the the bird's properly defrosted, you take it out early, then. Um, there's a few things to note. Um, number one, most turkeys that people are going to buy, unless you get it from a farm, have one of those internal pop-up thermometers in there. If you're going to wait for that thing to pop up, um, take out that same white flag we just waved a minute ago because you, you need to wave the white flag of dry turkey because you're going to surrender. If you let the, the turkey company and the FDA, whoever tells them what temperature that thing should pop out at, if you wait for it to pop, the bird's usually at about 180. And that means that the breast meat, when you try to slice it, it's just going to shred and pull apart because it's going to be completely overcooked. So forget that that thing is even in there and make sure that you've got um, a calibrated thermometer. Now, I know there's uh, a video that I've done on calibrating thermometers. I think you're going to put a link in your show notes. Watch it's that. already there. Definitely watch that video because you can get, you know, four or five dollar what they call stick thermometer and underneath those stick thermometers a little bolt and it comes with a wrench on it so if you watch the video you'll be able to calibrate that thermometer using ice water that's critical because 10 15 degrees can can make a huge difference so once you've got a thermometer you know you want to preheat your oven and then you're going to talk about stuffing um, i don't advise people stuffing uh, stuffing into a bird because that generally is going to make it um, harder to cook, harder to come to temperature because you're heating up uh, a larger mass. Personally, I cook the stuffing on the side or the dressing, as we call it down, down in the south. I cook it on the side. That's a good practice to do. Um, some people are still are going to stuff the bird. Uh, my mom used to stuff the bird with good results, but uh, something that I don't recommend, particularly for new or inexperienced cooks. So once that bird goes in there, here's the other the thing. You know, you've got the uh, the pop-up thermometer. You've got stuffing in the bird. The other huge tradition is basting the turkey. And this is definitely a point of contention. Now, I know people will argue with me about it, but uh, I've tested it myself. And uh, having worked in restaurants for 25 years, one particular restaurant, we used to cook 30 turkeys a day, every single day. And we never basted a single one of them. And they were cooked uncovered, and we cooked them to 155 degrees, took them out, and let them um, come to room temperature out on a table, and that brought the carryover temperature up to where it needed to be, which is 165. And they were always moist. Basting the turkey really does nothing. What it does, when you open that oven and you pull out the rack and you get the baster and you do all that, you're letting 75, 100 degrees of temperature out of your oven and you're putting uh, liquid over the turkey and the turkey's skin is somewhat waterproof. So when you put that liquid, that, you know, the fat, whatever's in the bottom, it's just going to run down. It really is not going to affect much on the inside. I have a theory as to what created basting in the first place. 
You've got the turkey in the oven for several hours, and the cook just wants to be left alone. So whenever the chaos of Thanksgiving gets too much, they claim that they have to go baste the bird, and somewhere along the way it became a real thing. Yeah. Because, they... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm guilty of it. Like, I'll, when I'm smoking meat and there's too much going on, I'm like, i got to go check on the meat. I don't check on the meat. I yeah, You just get out of the I'll, conversation. I can look out the window, and I can see the thermometer and the smoke, and I'm like, that's hey, good, but I'm going to go check on the meat. Yeah, it could be. Uh, yeah, I don't believe what you're saying. Let, let me go baste the turkey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's avoid a political conversation before the dinner. Right. But, you know, but yeah, I think that, like, and then the whole industry sprang up, and everybody's got to have a great big giant eyedropper turkey baster thingy, and it, it, it amazed me, because I used to do it, because, well, my Mother did it, and my grandmother did it, so I did it too. But you're right, you put the juice over the turkey, and all it does is just sheet off like, you know, rain off a rooftop. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, I used to do it at one point too, way back, and my mom did it. Um, but again, it, with so much experience cooking turkeys on a commercial scale and doing it both ways at home, I can't notice any difference or any reason to let that much heat out of the oven because if you look at the, the temperature on a graph during that cooking process, if you're basting it every 30 minutes or so, that oven temperature is having wild swings and it's just not a good thing for, for an evenly cooked bird. And furthermore, I've seen a lot of people um, burn themselves because that liquid is smoking hot. And when you yeah. go to take that thing out, it can. I've seen people get nasty burns on their hands basting. So don't baste a turkey. And then the next you know, major thing, like I said, is um, use a probe thermometer um, to check your turkey. And generally, a good rule is about 20 minutes per pound um, is about average. Um, but, you know, people's ovens do um, do vary. Now, we're, we're lucky enough to have an oven that it has a probe thermometer thing that's built right into it. So you take the probe thermometer, you plug it into the inside roof of the oven and then the probe goes into the meat, and you can set a digital timer on the, you know, the front of the oven. It's a GE monogram or something like that. And it tells you exactly when the turkey comes to temperature. And we made a turkey last week, and I set it for 158 degrees, I think. And it came out. I covered it up. And this is the next important thing, is when that turkey comes out, you want to, uh, you want to save all the drippings to make your gravy. But take your turkey carefully out. And place it on a cutting board. Hopefully it's one that has grooves around it. Otherwise, you're going to have liquid all over your counter. Mm -hmm. But put it on there and then take heavy-duty foil. And this is something that people need to get at the stores. Heavy-duty foil. And buy the foil that's um, it's about 20 to 24 inches in length, really big stuff. So take like two really big sheets of foil and, and completely enclose your bird, tucking the foil under. And then put a few kitchen towels on top of the foil. And that will let your bird... Finish its cooking, because remember, we, we took it out at about 158. That will let it finish its cooking. It will keep it nice and moist, and it will also keep it hot, waiting for you to carve it. Do you, in your experience, just a quick question, the, the 20 minutes per pound rule, does that number begin to drop at all as you get up into really big birds? In other words, if I use the calculations then to figure out I'm cooking a 22-pound turkey, Right, 22 pounds. That would put the bird in the oven for, what, about six and a half, seven hours? Yeah, no, it, when I say it's a, it's a guideline, I mean a very loose guideline because there's so many different variables. You know, a 10-pound turkey in a 350-degree oven, 20 minutes per pound, could be a totally different story with a 20-pound turkey at, you know, 365 or a different type of oven. 
uh, one with convection, one with not. So that's a guideline, and this is why you need to have um, that probe thermometer. And if you can get a probe thermometer that you place in the turkey and that's connected to a little digital thing outside of the oven, and, and those, are, those can be had for under $25, that's a really good way to go. But you need a calibrated thermometer to check, and don't leave that turkey in there you know, for three and a half hours before you take its temperature. So you, you definitely want to watch that. But just don't wait until the turkey's 175 to take it out. Ooh, the the yeah, other yeah. thing is when it's cooking, watch for it because it's going to get nice and brown. You don't want it to, to burn. If it looks like it's getting too dark and, and you've got, you know, 100 degrees to go or 70 degrees to go, you can simply take a sheet of that heavy-duty foil and just drape it loosely over the bird, and that will keep it from doing a lot more browning. It will still cook, but it will slow down the browning. I would also add, you brought up convection. So last year we had just gotten a brand new oven, my first ever awesome gas oven with convection cooking, and it was supposed to reduce the time a great deal. If you don't, if you haven't played with your convection oven cycle yet, I would suggest you just do it on regular old bake until you get some experience with your convection oven, because when you're trying to time a turkey and a big day, like mine just ended up taking a lot longer than it, I thought it would. Because uh, I thought it would reduce significantly based on the book that came with the oven, and it reduced the time it needed, but nowhere near on a big old bird to the level that the book inferred, right? So it was like it was going to cut the cooking time in half, and I would say it cut it by 30%. That's hours when you're talking a 22, 24-pound bird. So I would play with your convection oven before you trust it with a turkey, I, I, I guess. No, that's, that's an excellent point. What you're trying to do here, like in so many things in life, is you're trying to take as many variables out of play as possible to cooking a proper meal. And those can be very tricky, convection ovens. Um, and they can, you know, it's difficult to bake sometimes. Like we used to make pizza and we had a double oven. It was called a Le Conch. It's a great brand of French oven. One side was just plain gas oven. The other side was electric convection. Now, for instance, with a pizza stone in each oven, if you tried to cook a pizza in the convection side, the top would be completely done and underneath would be doughy. If you did it on the other side where the heat was coming just up from the bottom, it took longer but the results were much more like a traditional, you know, wood-fired pizza. Mm. So, yeah, this can make a big difference. And what happens most of the time is it will cook the outside much, much quicker than the yeah. inside. And then, um, you know, then you're struggling to keep that turkey from not burning on the outside but still coming to temperature. So that's an excellent point. Yeah, I, I've determined with mine, like, I won't even use it on a big giant thing like that. Like, if I'm doing vegetables and I'm doing roast vegetables, the convection cycle is awesome. But like, and if I'm doing like a small cut of meat and I want to roast it and I want to leave it rare inside, awesome. Big old honking hunk of bird, it good old fashioned bake, and and that's just what I've determined. I mean, other people might love theirs, but yeah, I, I would do it for the first time on Thanksgiving. I guess is my big point. No, that's a it's an excellent point, Jack, and and then you you kind of summed it up perfectly because that's what it does. It cooks cooks from the outside in really fast, but doesn't really penetrate a, a super deep. Um, bird like that and in the restaurants we um, we used to cook them in a non-convection oven and we did have uh, convection as well but we would cook them uh, 350 in a non-convection oven and, and that's the way we did it but yeah so once you've once you've got if you do these things and you've produced a bird that i mean the most critical thing defrosted not basted 
and cooked to about 158, and then you've got to cover it up, like I suggest, to keep it moist and hot. It will it will carry over. So now you've got a, a moist, well-cooked bird. The next step is um, building a gravy, and it's not very difficult. But I think that you know, with Thanksgiving, if you look at the table, you know, some people are going to love your green beans. Some people hate green beans. Some people like cranberry sauce some people won't touch it but everyone is going to want to eat the turkey and the mashed potatoes right and yep. with the mashed potatoes like i've tried to make mashed potatoes for my kids but i didn't have any uh anything roasting no meat no gravy and they just they're like where's the gravy dad so everyone <laughs> wants a good gravy that's what really you know and pouring that gravy on your sliced turkey i mean that's awesome so you've got to be able to make a gravy and it's not very difficult because just the fact that you cook that awesome turkey, you have money at the bottom of that pan. That roasting dish, that stuff that looks like it may be a little kind of stuck on there, sticky brown, that stuff is gold for making gravy. So what I suggest is um, there's there's several ways that you can build a gravy. I mean, you can... You can thicken it with roux. You can thicken it with cornstarch. And I've recommended both through the years. But a very simple way to do it is to take your turkey out. You've, you should have a lot of liquid in the bottom of that pan. Now, you want to strain that liquid carefully out because your roasting dish is going to be very hot. Strain the liquid out into a, a container. If you've got one of those um, gravy defatting uh, things, perfect. Put it in there. Then take your roasting dish. It's got to go back onto the top of the stove, um, about medium heat. If it's big enough to cover two burners, you can turn both burners on about a medium heat. And then you want to um, deglaze that pan because you're going to have some stuck-on stuff in there. But before you deglaze it, you need to get some fat in there. So you just poured your gravy into a gravy boat. If you don't have one of those um, you know, gravy defatting things, you can just scoop some of the fat off the top, put that right on top of anything that's stuck on the bottom of the pan, and then take just about a third of a cup of all-purpose flour, sprinkle it right on top of the fat in the dry roasting dish, take a whisk and start to combine that together and scrape everything as well as you can with that whisk, combining the liquid, the fat, and the flour together. Let it cook for a minute or so. At first, it's going to smell sort of like cereal or cake batter or cookie dough. You want to just cook it for a minute or so, and then the rest of the um, reserve juices go back in there. And at this point, you're going to season it. Now, you have to be careful because some people will put a lot of salt. There's nothing wrong with salting the top of your bird. You just have to make sure that and you need to taste it. You have to make sure that the liquid that you're putting in there, after you've thickened it up a bit, taste it with a spoon. If it's salty, obviously you don't need to add salt. If it's bland, you're going to need to season it a bit. Now, what I like to do is put a little bit of rubbed sage or even fresh sage leaves um, minced up finely right into the gravy. And once that thickens up, here's the other thing that kind of messes people up on a meal like this, the logistics of, of it all. You don't want cold gravy. So a good tip is if you've got, you know, a Stanley thermos or something like that, you can take your finished gravy. Once it thickens up enough to coat the back of a spoon, you can take it and um, pour it into a thermos, and then it will stay for a few hours like that. 
That way you're not thinking, oh, no, the gravy's cold. i got to reheat it. Because when you're making- Yeah, you don't forget you put it on to reheat, and all of a sudden you smell this horrible smell that lets you know you've burned the gravy on the bottom of the pan. Yeah, and, and evaporated it out. And if you've got, let's say you've got six cups of gravy. If you leave it cooking uncovered um, and it evaporates by 20%, that means the salt content can be crazy oh. high. So all of a sudden it yeah. tasted good at first. What happened to it? It got salty. So the best thing is to take it off and put it in the thermos, and that frees up a burner because this is the other thing with Thanksgiving is, um, you know, you only have so many burners on there, and this is why making a few things ahead of time is important. Because um, what I always do, and you tell me if, if if I'm doing a good thing or not, but it works out anyway. Um, everybody has their Thanksgiving traditions, and one of my traditions is we always eat late enough that I watch the first football game on the couch with the cat eating a turkey neck and sharing it with him. And so I'm going to make that neck. I boil the neck. So I take the neck and I take all the giblets and everything and I throw them in a stock pot with a little bit of onion and, and uh, celery and carrot and some salt. And I basically make a turkey broth out of all that. And then I add that to what I'm doing with the gravy just so I can make more gravy. Because if you want to see people eat some gravy, come to Texas. I mean, the gravy is is more of the star, I think, than the turkey sometimes. I mean, so if I just make gravy with what comes out of the pan, I end up with a gravy shortage. So the way I kind of stretch that is with a turkey broth. And instead of buying a broth, I just use what comes with the turkey. No, that, that's an excellent point, and, and I do recommend that. And I've got some videos on uh, on making a giblet gravy. But, yeah, that stuff in the bag that they put in the turkey a lot of people just go in there and they think whoa gosh what's this stuff and they toss it out that stuff is gold for gravy and and just for the reason you mentioned is you know depending on how much liquid you have at the bottom of your turkey and it will vary greatly um that's gonna it it could create a turkey shortage so having you don't want to add water to it that's the thing you've worked hard to build all this great turkey flavor if you add water because you don't have enough um you don't have enough liquid, now you've killed the flavor and you've got just bland liquid. But taking the giblets and the, the goodies from inside the bag, particularly the neck, that will make awesome, awesome uh, turkey broth that you can use in your gravy. So that's a, that's a good point. It's something that um, we definitely do here. And, and I know whenever that stuff starts to get a little bit cooked, man, you can't keep the dog out of the kitchen because he's... Yeah, I was going to say, I don't do the giblet thing because my family won't eat it. Um, I usually cut up the heart and the gizzard and the liver in cubes, and that's the other tradition. So while the cat is enjoying the turkey neck with me watching a football game, usually one I don't care about because it's never the Steelers, um, <laughs> the dogs are munching on chopped up cube giblets. But I try to get the uh, all that flavor out of there, man, you know. And if I need a little extra, I might buy some turkey stock or something, you know, in a can. Because, again, the gravy is... <laughs> I put it this way. I'm making two different pans of stuffing. Uh, so between stuffing, turkey, and potatoes, the gravy gets a workout here. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and you know, for those of you out there listening that, um, you know, are, are just recovering from the from throwing up, hearing us talking about all this offal and innards, um, just some, you know, turkey broth or even uh, good quality chicken broth can be that uh, that extra liquid that you need. Yeah, definitely. So let's kind of move on from there. Okay, I think did we 
when you were talking about the turkey, did we really explain like the vegetable bed that goes down underneath it before we move on? No, and this is um, and again, there's so many people do so many different things. I know people that are you know the they use those V rack roasters where it's a square roasting dish and then they put a rack in there that's shaped like a V. They put the yep. turkey in there and they don't put any vegetables underneath. I like to put vegetables underneath my bird and I'll I'll clean um, celery, carrot, onion, and usually um, a turnip or two. And hmm. I put that down as a bed, and I put the turkey on top of that. And the comp- so, do you use a rack, or do you just use a vegetable bed? I just use a vegetable bed. Okay, cool. Yeah, and the combination of that roasting turkey and that hot fat, and the cooking of those vegetables, particularly that turnip in there, and the celery, uh, onion, that really makes for a rich. You know, when you strain that liquid out, all those vegetables go into a strainer. Some people will pull them out and pulverize them and put them into the gravy. The very least you want to do is take a masher and push as much of that flavor through your strainer um, into the the liquid that you're going to use to make the gravy because that stuff is gold, just like the yeah. I throw them in a Vitamix. Yeah, that's another great way. Yeah, the Vitamix yeah. makes them nice and smooth. So yeah. So um, so so we got to have that that vegetable bed now. I, I'm actually going to try that this year because I didn't realize that you did that. That you don't use because I always use the the rack. That holds the bird up above the vegetables. Yeah. So I'm gonna try doing it straight on the vegetables. Uh, a buddy of mine, Neil, who's really like kind of a you know home gourmet cook type guy, showed me a chicken recipe recently. And what he does is kind of what you said. And to keep the chicken from burning, the first layer of the vegetables he just has like like a, a like whole sliced onion layer, and then all the vegetables go on that, and the chicken sit on that. It came out really good. So I'm gonna give that a shot. Um, I've always thought if you keep it up, roast that skin. But you yeah, know, and to your point, some people, and you know, this is something I definitely recommend. I mean, if you're just a couple, and and some people hate the dark meat and they don't want to deal with the bag of goodies inside, there's nothing wrong with just buying a whole bone-in turkey breast, and that's what we did last week for our uh, pre-Thanksgiving Thanksgiving, mm. and uh, those things will not stand up. Uh, <laughs> so if you try to put one of those in a pan or on vegetables, oh, yeah. it's just going to fall over on its side, and you don't want to do that. Like I know a couple times. I was away traveling or whatever, and I come home. My wife, well, I have a roast chicken in the oven. I looked, and she, she had the thing upside down, so she didn't realize. <laughs> and I'm like, I go, what the heck kind of chicken is that? She's like, what? I'm like, you got it upside down. But, yeah, so if you don't have those legs on there, the thing is going to fall over, and that's where those V-racks are really handy if you just have a, um, a turkey breast. Cool, man. Before we move on to um, stuffing and potatoes, because where I want to go next, just an aside as a thought, I've been kicking around buying one of these things. They make them for turkeys and chickens. It sits in the roasting pan, and the turkey goes onto it. So it's like hanging in the air. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. You call them a cannon roaster? Yeah, those are cool. Um, it, and I think for most people it will work, but you're going to have to make sure that you're um, – before you go and do that and heat your oven up and have your racks in there, make sure that when you take – your roasting dish and that turkey sitting on that fit. that thing that it's going to fit in the oven because those turkeys, you know, 20-pound turkeys yeah. vertical can be pretty tall. Yeah, I was thinking it may be more for, for just day-to-day use with chickens and stuff. Seems like a cool way to do it. No, it is, and part. it does what you say. It, it really will give nice, even, crispy skin, and, and um, you know, they kind of self-based a bit when they're doing that, so that's a cool way of doing it. Skin. Because <laughs> yeah. they can have the turkey. If I could have all the skin, I'd be good, man. Um but let's move on then to like potatoes, right? So the other thing is potatoes, right? 
Um, those are something that you can like every housewife in America, every old cook in America, every grandma in America can make mashed potatoes pretty good. And then every once in a while you have a potato failure. You either end up with something that's really lumpy, chunky, or you end up with something that looks like farina. Right. So, so how do we avoid that? How do we make awesome? Cause it's the day we want those potatoes just to be badass. Yeah, no, great point. And I've had uh, a couple of Thanksgivings ago, um, you know, obviously being the chef, if I go to somebody's house, it's kind of assumed that I'm cooking Thanksgiving. And uh, I made everything but the potatoes that one year. And, and I love potatoes. And when I reached in and took a bite, man, they were a huge, like, golf ball hard chunks of potato in there. So you know, I didn't say anything, but I know my wife tends not to be as diplomatic as I. And she's like, well, these things are raw. <laughs> but, yeah, you, you can mess up the potatoes easily. But here's just a few basic um potato things and there's two schools of thought on this as well some people grew up where the potatoes were and and it depends on what type of potatoes let's just talk about russets for now regular idaho potatoes peeled potatoes they're cut up some people will boil them and some people will steam them i prefer to steam the potatoes Uh, a steamed potato is going to pick up don't fool yourself it's going to pick up some moisture from steam but not quite as much as if you boil it so my first thing is to steam the potatoes, and this can be done um, quite a bit ahead of time. Again, thinking about how many things you're cooking at once. Once you have those potatoes cooked, and by golly, you got to make sure, take a knife and pierce it all the way in there. It should come out easily. And if they're not cooked, man, you're in you're in deep doo-doo. So make sure they get cooked. Now the other the other thing that people do uh, quite frequently with potatoes. They'll cook them. They'll have hot potatoes. All right, we've got to make mashed potatoes. They'll go into the refrigerator, and they'll take out 37-degree milk and 37-degree butter and sour cream and dump it in their you know 165-degree mashed potatoes. And what you have is potatoes that are cold, so you can't bring those to the, potato, to the table. So then you have people putting them in the microwave or reheating them on the burner, and, they, and those things are going to burn on the bottom. Then you've got black bits in there. It's a disaster. So what I do is very simple, and I've done it enough times to where I know about how much liquid I need uh, so I don't have a cream of wheat like you were describing. But for somebody that's not so versed in this, make an infused mixture in a pot. So you've got one... Let's say you steamed them in a in kind of a Dutch oven type thing. You've um, removed all the water, dumped the potatoes right back in the same pan, and then you've got a sauce pot. Now you want to heat up. This is what I do. I like to take one garlic clove. I don't mash it. I put it in peeled. Put that in, in there. Um, a sprig of fresh thyme or minced chives, one of the two. Then I'll put in a stick of butter and a little bit of milk and a little bit of cream. And I make sure that I've got you know, somewhere around a quart, let's say, of that mixture. My goal is to have extra. You don't want to have not enough because you don't want to reach in and get cold stuff. So you bring that stuff up to temperature, and this is where you've got to be, you know, you're like a, a concert pianist or a, um, uh, what do you call it, a conductor. You've got all these moving parts. You don't want to put cream and milk, you know, on your stove and walk away because that stuff will expand. No. And then when that hits your stovetop and burns, man, you're going to be embarrassed. So you want to watch it. Put it on a low. When it comes up to just a scald or just starts to bubble a bit, turn it off. And now, by the ladleful, put some into your potatoes, season them with salt and pepper, start mashing. Once it, once all that is kind of mixed in, 
more of the milk and cream mixture, a little more salt and pepper, start mashing. And you want to bring it from lumpy potatoes to smooth, you know, mashed potatoes where all of that liquid is incorporated and this, and it'll stand up on a spoon. You don't want it to be, you know, you're not making potato soup here. Okay. Um, another thing that people like to do, and, and I've done it before, is uh, either use a ricer where you take your cooked potatoes, you put them in the ricer, and that's just a device that squeezes them through like a fine mesh on the other side. And that makes for a good texture. You can even put them in a stand mixer with the whisk attachment and uh, whisk them up and then add your hot cream and milk to that, and then you get kind of a whipped, airy potato. Now, for me, with the Idaho potatoes, I do like them whipped a bit, but you can you can do it with grandma's old-fashioned masher. Just stir that stuff around, make sure there's no lumps, stir it around, and it'll develop sort of, uh, I don't want to say wallpaper paste. If you overmix it, it can get starchy and thick and kind of gluey. But I like a teeny bit of that texture in there. So rather than kind of soft and mushy, just a little bit firm from bringing out some of the starch in there and, and all of a sudden you've got great potatoes. But you do need to season them along the way. And you have to taste everything. You're, everything's got to be tasted. You can't bring those potatoes to the table if they're bland. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I prefer the hand mixer myself, but I've, ab- I've abdicated the responsibility for potatoes to my wife because that's like the one thing she likes to make. I made them the one year where I steamed them and whipped them, and they came out like you were talking about, really light. And I thought they were fantastic, but my family prefers the heavier potatoes, so I abdicated that back to the the master of the heavier potato, I guess. Yeah, and the hand blender, you know, with the little uh, whiskey things that you plug into it and you turn it on, we've got one of those, and and that works really well uh, also. I guess my problem with that is then you've got... You got another container. You got dirty things. You know, electric yeah. cord. So I don't mess with it. But uh, either way, you've got a lot of options there. Yeah, the hand mixer works really good. I'm talking about like you're talking about the old German potato masher. You know, grandma's thing. I I love using that. But the wife uses a beater. It makes her happy. So <laughs> why not? Yeah. So let's talk about a uh, 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 stuffing or dressing then, and uh, maybe a couple different types of that because i like to do cornbread but i end up making uh, one small pan of cornbread stuffing for myself and then regular for everybody else because i like the cornbread and no one else does yeah and that's funny it's very regional like depending upon where you go in the country having grown up in the northeast um first of all it's stuffing up there it's not dressing yep um it's stuffing up there as you know from pennsylvania and my mom being italian would use a uh, sweet italian sausage with apples and then a lot of sage, breadcrumbs, onion, celery, that sort of thing in her uh, stuffing. Then down south, the, the um, you know the the cornbread is huge. And one good thing, most cornbread, if you if you buy it the right way, can be gluten free. So if you've got people coming to your Thanksgiving, what a great way to make them feel special by either making um, two versions and say you know this is gluten free for you. Or, you know, just skipping the, the bread altogether and using the cornbread. But I p- just posted a, a, a short, very easy, traditional stuffing recipe uh, on my blog. And basically, you know, the components of stuffing, th- there's two things. There's, or dressing. There's the, the bread, whether it's cornbread or regular bread. 
there's aromatics and there's generally some type of liquid, you know, broth. And that's really all there is to making a basic one. And you can go crazy like in New Orleans. They've got oysters in there and andouille sausage. You can put mushrooms. I mean, apples, sausage. Um, the flavorings are kind of uh, very variable and just about anything that tastes good will work. But a standard um, stuffing sort of, you know, the mirepoix would um, would include not carrots. So a mirepoix is traditionally onions, carrots, celery. For Thanksgiving, I don't like putting carrots in there. I'll use what they call the trinity around New Orleans, and you replace the carrot with bell peppers. Mm. And they're grassy tasting. So you've got onions, which which are awesome. So onion, celery, which is a little grassy tasting too, and the bell pepper. Um, the combination of those three, cooked down, you know, a little olive oil, whatever you want, whatever type of fat, butter, cooked down a bit, and with some rubbed sage. That's that real classic flavor and aroma of Thanksgiving is, is the rubbed sage. But when you cook those aromatics, now you've got uh, a bunch of aromatics. From there, once they're nice and soft, you need to add your either your stuffing. It's usually going to be... Um, and don't buy that stuff in the bag because that, that's got a lot of added chemicals and preservatives. But you can take any, you know, day-old type bread and just cut it up into, you know, three-eighths of an inch cubes. That works fine. So you toss that into your aromatics, mix it together well, and then you want to add some um, broth to it. And the whole time, you want, every time you add something, you want to make sure it's seasoned with salt and pepper. Again, tasting as you go. But the dressing or stuffing, it should be moist. You don't want um, the consistency of, of something dry. This just needs to be you know, kind of a moist thing. And once you decide whether you're going to do cornbread or regular bread and you get it all mixed together, generally it's going to be, like I recommend, put into a, a casserole. It just needs to be heated in the oven. Um, everything's already cooked in there, so you're not cooking it per se. You're just heating it up. Um, but that's really about it. Um, and I love my favorite is cornbread, the the uh, trinity, which is the carrot, celery, bell pepper. And I like to add mushrooms to it mm. um, and sometimes sausage. Those, yeah, those things are, are terrific together. And I really like the cornbread and, and I've done everything. I've used, you know, heirloom stone ground cornmeal to make a, you know, cast iron skillet full of cornbread. I've also used Jiffy corn mix a few years. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, honestly, the the results were, um, you know, not the same, but not too far apart. But yet, well, when you're making like a stuffing, right? It it's you know, and I mean, the other thing is, we all try to be as healthy as we can, but it's Thanksgiving, indulge a little. That's kind of the point. Um, this year, what I'm doing for cornbread stuffing, I'm doing cornbread. Uh, I have never done peppers. I usually admit the carrots, and I use uh, just the the onions and celery. But I'll I'll try the peppers this year. Um, cornbread, uh, handmade sausage that's based on your recipe, uh, and chestnuts and apples. Oh, wow. So that's going to be my little dish of cornbread that I'll probably feast on all weekend long because nobody else wants it. That's fine. And then I'll make them their regular plain old bread cube stuffing that they like. I mean, and that you know. one sounds good, Jack. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. Sausage but, you know. and apples, man. Chestnuts, yeah, man. The chestnuts are great. And you can get these. You probably still have time to order them if you order them today and get them. They have these chestnuts you can buy on Amazon. They come in like a foil pack. They're already peeled and ready to go. Uh, they have a great shelf life, too. Uh, I think they come in a three-pack, so there's a lot of them. You throw them in the refrigerator, and, you know, when you want to make something with chestnuts, you just pull them out, chop them up, 
And then you're not sitting there boiling or, you know, roasting chestnuts or whatever. Cause I don't have time to add that to, to Thanksgiving. Roasting but, uh, chestnuts on an open yeah. fire. Christmas, right? I saw this cartoon the other day that I posted on Facebook. It's the Pilgrims and the Indians, and the Pilgrims got like a big old blunderbuss shotgun, and Santa's standing there, and the Pilgrim has the gun pointed at Santa and says, who the hell are you, and what are you doing here before before Thanksgiving? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. The trees were out uh, awfully early this year. Man, they were two weeks ago, live trees. I'm like, there's no way that thing has needles on it by December 25th. Yeah, I noticed that, too, out in front of the, the grocery store, and they're just sitting there. They're not uh, – I mean, they were out there – Two weeks ago, and they smelled really good, man. I walked by them, and, I, man, I just felt like I was in a pine forest for a minute. But, yeah, how good yeah. are they going to be a couple weeks from now? I just can't see it, especially, I mean, I'm in Texas. You're in Florida now. I mean, uh, even indoors, there's a certain regional component to this tree that was cut down in Vermont or New Hampshire or Michigan or something and shipped in a refrigerated truck probably a week before it showed up on the Lowe's lot, right? So you're looking at like 45 days for that thing to survive after somebody cut it down. I I don't see it. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> do you do uh, you do a real or fake tree? We do a fake tree because my wife has an OCD disorder when it comes to Christmas lights. It's like the only thing in her world that she's like this over. But if a light is hanging, like the wire is visible, she like wants to punch a hole in the wall. <laughs> so I went out and bought like the seven foot beautiful pre wired Christmas tree. Just so that I never had to deal with it ever again. And like when it finally, like, like when I can't make it work anymore, I'll just donate it and go get another one. Because <laughs> it's, like it's weird. Like she's not, she's like so easygoing about everything, but she'll tell you flat out when I see that wire hung, hanging, I want to punch a wall. And I'm like, just not dealing with it. Yeah, my wife's the same way. We are, try North. to wrap a real tree that way. There won't be any needles on it. You know, I mean, you can't do it with a real tree. I always just drape the stuff in there. But anyway. Let's let's get back to uh, to Thanksgiving. So, can we talk about maybe some other like so we did the traditional stuffing, turkey, uh, potatoes. Any maybe other side dishes we could throw in some real quick ideas like maybe some of with a different root vegetable or you know green beans maybe instead of just because God I I know some people love it but that green bean casserole with the onion crap on oh. it. Ugh. That's grim. Yeah, I a can of Campbell's soup. I don't want it, especially on Thanksgiving. No, I know. I don't. I don't go for opening up the soup cans. Well, I'll, I'll give you a quick one with green beans, um, and they've got to be fresh. And a lot of times they're growing them in Florida and shipping them all over, at least the East Coast this time of the year. Um, but if you've got fresh green beans, you um, of course tip and tail them, cut them or snap them. Don't cut them. Snap them into pieces. And what I like to do is steam them for about. 20 minutes or so, and then I take a pretty wide skillet. In the skillet goes a few tablespoons of butter. I'll put in a minced shallot, and uh, sometimes garlic, sometimes not, but I'll let that shallot cook a little bit in the butter, and then in goes heavy cream, and I'll let that heavy cream um, reduce way down because it'll be pretty soupy at first. Once it comes down and starts to show little signs of thickening, Season it with salt and pepper, dump the beans in there, and cook those beans for 15 minutes additional um, in that flavored cream mixture, and then serve that. And I, mm. I call it green beans with shallots and cream, and it's it's been a huge hit. And it, I think that it's awesome. I think it's in my cookbook, and I've heard I've heard from hundreds of people through the years that have made that. And that's a really great one. And another thing that's super easy that we've been doing a lot is a, a pot of greens. 
You know, we'll make either collard greens or kale. Super simple, just um, garlic, onions, a little bit of chicken broth, kale, salt and pepper cooked for about 40 minutes, toss it a few times. That is definitely something that will be on our table. And another one that um, we love is uh, Brussels sprouts with a little bit of uh, Mornay sauce on them. And that basically take Brussels sprouts, cut off the stem, split them in half. Those are steamed for about 20 minutes, no more, and then put into um, a dish. And then you, you make a basic white sauce, which is going to be equal parts butter and flour, whisked together for about a minute to get that cakey flavor out. In goes um, a piece of onion and a bay leaf, also some milk, maybe three cups of milk, and let that come up to you know a pretty fast simmer, whisking it. It will thicken up, and now you've got yourself a basic white sauce. Strain that out into another pot and then add in your favorite cheese. What, what I would suggest is something like Gruyere or a sharp Vermont white cheddar. Put maybe a cup of cheese into that mixture and now you've got what they call Mornay sauce. You had a, one of the five mother sauces, which is bechamel. You've added something to it, making a compound sauce, in this case Mornay. Take it and um, kind of pour it over your Brussels sprouts. Then I like to take some good uh, Parmesan cheese and grate that over the top. goes mm. in the oven for about 25 or 30 minutes until the top. You can even put a little bit of you know panko breadcrumbs, those coarse Japanese breadcrumbs on the top. Put it in the oven for a little bit. starts to get a little bubbly and little hints of golden brown. That is really fantastic as well. Um, what else do we do? Another thing, you know, potatoes are terrific. Um, I've got a dish, uh, I think it's in my cookbook, and you're going to link to it, but it's a sweet potato dish that is another one that I think about recipes all the time. I mean, when I walk food, you know, instead of, you know, sugar plums dancing in my head, it's recipes, and that's just the way I'm wired. And one thing that I came up with a few years ago was roasted sweet potatoes with a compound butter, and that's a fancy chef term for room temperature butter that's flavored with other things. In this case like uh, sage and maybe, um, what did I put in there? I guess it was just a little bit of sage and some maple syrup mixed into this butter. And then you roast sweet potatoes, cut them open, put a big, nice mound of this flavored compound butter, some gourmet Virginia peanuts. And people are thinking, what? Sweet potatoes and peanuts is really cool. Those gourmet Virginia peanuts over the top, Mm. Little drizzle more of maple syrup. People freak over that one. That is, it's interesting, but anything you can do to put a little crunch in things just, you know, really kind of livens it up. Like when I do my stuffings, I will always put them in the oven to warm them because I make them in advance. And then, like right before I pull them out, I'll turn the broiler on just for a couple seconds to crisp the top. And it, like anything you can do to add like a textural addition. Or stack of flavor just seems to really like do it for people. No, you're uh, you're spot on, Jack. When people, uh, you're an advanced cook, but some people that are learning, you know, taste is one thing, but texture is really important. And uh, the other component, like you talked about, sort of that extra brownness. Like my father-in-law, he will he'll go right for that. I mean, they even take they make a tray of stuffing and then they put another tray in there and basically they burn it. I mean, they'll do just what you said. It's almost black on top. And that's yeah. the one he wants to eat. He always wants to eat the toast that's super dark because there's flavor in there. That extra kind of heavy caramelization type flavor is really good. But, yeah, no, texture's key. You've got to have some texture in there. Another thing that I really love 
is um, turnips, turnips and parsnips, which people think are white carrots. They're like a giant-looking carrot, thicker on the end and and white. But if you steam or boil turnips, and you want to make sure that you get yellow or golden turnips, and sometimes they call them rutabagas, you don't want the ones that are pink and purple because those are spicy. Those are kind of like horseradish tasting. But you want the waxed brown golden turnips, and those things are a pain in the butt to peel. So, but if you can get them peeled, you dice them up with some parsnips, steam it, and then treat it with butter, salt, and pepper, maybe a little bit of cream. And this is where you want that stuff. You don't want any lumps in that. You want it really smooth, either Vitamix or, you know, your wife's hand blender, whatever you need to do to get that smooth. But a, uh, a little puree of parsnips and turnips is, is super great as well. I would add one of the things when we were talking about green beans. Like, so here's my simple redneck version of green beans, but you get the crunch, right? So you take about eight pieces of a really good thick bacon and and fry it and set it aside, drain it, and then just take the the bacon grease and toss the green beans with it, put it in a dish and bake that. You know, so you bake the green beans in the in the uh, the bacon grease. Uh, you don't need salt because you got bacon grease. A little bit of pepper, maybe a little bit of whatever herbs or seasonings you want to use. Chop up that that cooked bacon, and for like the last five minutes in there, throw it on the top, right? So then it, it kind of warms it back up, and it, it crisps even a little bit more, and then you just serve it like that. So bacon and green beans, and that's like, I do that because i got all this other crap going on, and that's so simple. I can fry my bacon on Wednesday, you know, reserve some grease aside from it, and just kind of do that toward the end. Yeah, man, anything with bacon on it is extra good, that's for sure. If we can make a bacon wrapped turkey, dude, yeah. then, no, that's then awesome. we've got it. Yeah, we uh, um, we've done things with wrapped in bacon and prosciutto, and that's that's money, uh, man. Backfilling to the turkey a little bit. So my family, like you said, some people don't like dark meat. One of the things my family likes, and and it's important to me because I like it too, so it creates a shortage. My family loves dark meat. Everybody wants freaking dark meat. So I usually grab like a couple extra drumsticks. Right, so that's not going to cook the same way a whole turkey is. So if you're going to take that approach, maybe you pick up a couple quarters or something, so you have extra dark meat. How would you kind of stack the functioning so that I'm not totally cooking them separate? Would you just add them into the oven later or what? Yeah, I would probably add them into the right into the same same dish. And you know, even though they're not technically connected to the turkey, they're going to take a good long time to get that um, that meat because that's real you know it's got a lot of fat in there yeah um, but they take a while to cook so yeah i would probably do that as well just, just maybe take their temperature when you take the bird's temperature yeah. and when they hit the one the 165 yank them yeah definitely and make sure that they're um well covered and uh let them do their their carry over cooking but yeah that's a, that is a good plan and there is there is always a deficiency of of that good particularly that that meat that's kind of underneath the legs there that that oh, yeah. really delicious stuff yeah, yeah, the fat is what makes it, you know. And but I did I have to say when 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 I had you on the first time we ever did this, I think that was about four years ago. We did a Thanksgiving show together. If it was at least three, if it wasn't four, and I started cooking a turkey the way you said to, I noticed that because I always had white meat that was pretty dad gone good, but like the next day, whatever you'd left, you know, sliced and left aside for leftovers, the dark meat was still nice and juicy, and the white would dry out. When I started cooking the turkey the way you said to do it, that white meat was nice and juicy the next day if you're making a sandwich or a leftover something out of it. And it's because you're not overcooking it. So I think that people can have a turkey on their table 
it even seems like it's not dried out, but yet it's not as it's not as moist and juicy as it could be. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. And, and again, you know, through the years, um, I've heard from a lot of people that that are we're very used to just letting that thermometer pop up and then dealing with the kind of you know pull yeah. the turkey, if you will, because it's hard to slice. If you cook it to one eighty, one eighty five with carryover temperature, and it's uh, you, you try to slice it, and the knife just it just falls apart. So a lot of people have said that you know that's uh, those those type of tips really help, and it does, man. Think, you want that you want that white meat to be juicy and tasty. Yeah, and I think the other tip that I would give people is don't carve the whole damn turkey if the family's not going to eat the whole turkey. If if you're going to use about one side of the breast and 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 the dark meat, leave that. Take that other half of the breast, leave it whole, and let it cool all the way down whole for slicing for leftovers. Because when you slice it, you know full well, as you slice, you see that juice come out. Well, it's now come out. And no matter how many times the chef on TV says, let the juices go back inside, they they don't go back inside, right? Once they're out, they're out. So if you leave pieces of meat in larger sections for your leftovers, they're going to keep better. Yeah, no doubt. And the other, I guess it was uh, about a week ago when we had that um – that whole turkey, bone-in turkey breast, when we roasted it, that's exactly what I did is I carved both of the breasts off in one piece, which is very easy to do, and then um, I let it cool. It was wrapped, and, and a whole one was put into the refrigerator, and then we ate sandwiches off of that thing and um, all kinds of stuff. But, yeah, I, I also see a lot of people, they'll bring the whole turkey to the table, and it is very festive. It's got that you know carved, carved table-side feel to it. But some folks, you know, if you've never carved a turkey before, you know, you, you see people just hacking that thing. And it looks like, you know, it got done with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's easier to do it on. And it also doesn't require, and this is the other thing, when people get to the table, you know, back to logistics and timing. And if you've got anybody that's picky, like my mom is 87. She likes yeah. her food hot. And I'm talking yeah. like ripping hot, like you yeah. have to have a tongue made out of rubber to eat it so hot. And if you've got any people like that, the sides are on the table, and then you've got somebody there, you know, carving the bird and putting on yeah. a plate and handing it down. I mean, minutes and minutes and minutes can go by. So everything is cold. I recommend taking that turkey and uh, carving the breasts off, the legs, and then I I just put it on a platter, and that way yeah. I'm able to decorate it with some, you know, rosemary and cut up oranges and things like that. And I do the same thing, and, like, the part of the why I do it is, okay, so I can sit there and, and carve your white meat for you, right? But the dark meat, some of it you can carve, but a lot of it is, you know, the whole thing where the junior wants the drumstick and dad gives him the whole drumstick. Well, with the dark meat shortage, I'm not dumping off a whole drumstick over here and a whole pie over here. You want that meat cut up so people can sit down and eat. Well, a lot of that dark meat requires a little bit of kind of a pulled, pulled pork philosophy. You kind of separate it with your hands and all. You know, and you can wash your hands, and that's fine. And if you don't want me to touch your food, don't eat my food, because sooner or later I'm going to touch the food. Um, but at the table, and you're there, and you've got, like, turkey grease on your hands and all. And to me, the only way to really get all that dark meat nicely sorted out, stacked, so that people can just take it with a fork, the hands have to come into play. No, you're, you're spot on. And, and this is um, my platter that I use. It will um, I'll put the two breasts sliced on the on the platter sort of at an angle and then in between into the back I will pick 
as much because like you said when you once you pull off those drumsticks and i'll put those on there so they'll be nicely on there and then i'll i'll take with my hands and it's hot normally but i'll get as much of that underside and all around the legs dark back on the thighs and all that stuff yeah. yeah and you pull it all off and you make a big stack and then when that platter goes around if they want their dark meat there they go and you know someone's going to fight over the the two drumsticks but um yeah that's a great way to do it we've uh, we've yeah. been doing it like that probably for over 10 years it definitely is easier, yeah. right? Because like you got all these people there, and everybody has their own, and and there's all these little conflicts going on when that much family gets together. All everything you can do to just here's the food, eat it, and once people put food in their mouth, they they shut up long enough to enjoy each other. Yeah, that's for sure. But on that, so everybody's bloated on turkey and stuffing and and, and stuff now. Oh, I got to throw in my, my my potato recipe before we do desserts. So I like to do roasted potatoes. I usually don't do them because there's so much food, but if you want a side potato dish that's not mashed. I just do fingerling potatoes, I cut them in half, and I boil them for like five minutes. And you can probably give me the scientific reason this works, because I don't know. You boil them for like five minutes, you let them cool down, you coat them with, uh, I usually use peanut oil, because I don't like to roast things too high temperature with olive, and then hit them with like rosemary, and then just roast those till they brown up in the oven. And by boiling them first, they get in the oven, they get this crispy outside that if you don't do that, they, they, they're just, they're not bad, they just don't have as much of that kind of roasted character. I don't know if it does something to starch or whatever, but that's always been a big hit, but people gorge on so much mashed potatoes, I've, I've stopped doing it. Yeah, no, it is a good point, and, and um, a recipe that we've been making for about 15 years, it comes from my mother-in-law, who's uh, from Bavaria, and it's uh, we call it lard-roasted potatoes. Mm. And uh, that's what she does, but uh, hers are, she takes Idaho potatoes, peels them, and cuts them in half lengthwise but she will boil them and it's got to be two minutes don't uh, don't make it two minutes and 30 seconds she's german two minutes is two minutes and if you don't and i said to my wife ah, i've been cooking all this time what is this boiling doesn't mean crap and i've tried to do it without boiling you can't get any color on them you put them in the oven they're they're tossed in lard and they're baked in the oven for about an hour you could cook them six hours and they don't really get the type of crisp brown that they do with two minutes of boiling, so it it definitely does something, but yeah, that's a great recipe as well. Peel your. I don't know if it like starts. I, my only guess, and this is a guess, I'm not going into biochemistry to figure this out, is that as you boil it, since that starch, potato starch is in there, that it might start extracting it toward the outside. As it cools, it ends up with like almost like you've taken some light potato starch and coated it, and that that's the only explanation I, I can come up with. Neil's the one turning onto that and. You're right. I can't if I just bake or roast a potato. I can't get that brown. But you do that little boil thing, man, and it just and it it, it, it again it's texture and it's flavor that's not there otherwise. Yeah, it's uh, there's definitely something to the what I call the grandma technology, and uh, yeah. it it works. And those are I remember she always makes those at Christmas too, like standing rib roast with lard roasted potatoes, and they're they're fully dark brown and crispy on the outside. But when you cut them, they yield a bit, and they've got Nice dense interior. When you have a nice beef gravy over those things, oh man, you've you've just you've had some really good food. In the interest of making everybody hungry, so another way I've done those is instead of using peanut oil, I do a goose. You take the goose fat, oh yeah, and roast them in the goose fat, and then you know I'm looking at a goose looking at me in the window right now, and he's in danger just from me thinking of doing that. 
<laughs> yeah, it reminds me of um, in Burgundy, France, when I was over there um, doing a big event a few years ago. We went to this market that they have all the time. They had these giant rotisseries, and they had a lot of different game birds on there, some chickens. Um, they had quails, all types of birds, and they were spinning on the rotisserie, melting all that fat, and down below in great big stainless steel trays were these freshly dug little um, red and white potatoes, mm. and they had they strewn sliced onions over them, and then they just sit there, and all that hot fat for hours goes onto them, and man, people would just, I was like, what are they eating? And they would just take a scoop of that potato, onion, and yeah. Bird fat and man, was that good! <laughs> All right, so let's 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 really hurt people and move on to uh, to, to dessert. I'm going to confess that this year, with everything that's been going on, dessert is going to consist of a pre-made lemon meringue pie that everybody else will eat, and a chocolate something pie that my wife bought. And I'm going to eat one of these like plain old, you know, pumpkin pies because I like that. And there's actually someone else coming this year that will eat some pumpkin pie, so I won't end up eating the whole thing. And that's all we're going to do. But that's really not what I usually do. And it's it's cool to make something of your own. And you have, like, this flourless chocolate cake that's pretty badass if people will want to take the time to make it. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it's delicious. And, you know, I'm with you. I gave my children an out the other day. We were, we were driving to church or something. And I said, since we've already had Thanksgiving, what do you say that we uh, we just get some, some T-bone steaks or maybe some ribeyes and we'll have steak for Thanksgiving? And, my wife was all about it. I thought it would be yeah. a cool idea if the kids wouldn't have it. So yeah, you know, I don't stick to tradition. And when you have Thanksgiving, you know, desserts are definitely traditional. And we, growing up, always had this flourless chocolate cake. And those of you that own my cookbook, it's in there. Uh, if you search on YouTube, you can find it. I'm going to be posting it to my blog, a video. And it's a long video, um, but it shows how to make it. And it's basically flourless chocolate cake. And it's super simple. It's... Um, Nice chocolate with sugar, eggs, and that, and egg whites. That's what makes up the batter part, and that's uh, baked in the oven. And then it's just basically folded up with uh, what they call chantilly cream, which is vanilla-flavored heavy whipping cream that's beaten up. And um, if you want to make it easy, like what I'll do, my mom always rolled it over, and that's where sometimes it can be challenging to, to roll it. But what I'll do is bake it, and essentially it's a flourless chocolate sponge cake. I'll take it out, let it cool, and then I'll cut it into pieces, whether it be rounds with a, you know, like a cutter or squares, whatever. And then you layer it with that um, Chantilly whipped cream covered in powdered sugar. And that is, that is definitely, I wish I could say it's a recipe that I invented. It's my mom's recipe, but it is probably um, one of the most popular things I've ever shared with anybody is that uh, that recipe. We we even had it on the menu. Uh, I ran 12 restaurants when I was at um, the ski resort, and we uh, we had it on a couple of menus there, and people just freaked out over that cake. It's so good with the cream and the chocolate, and, and what everyone says is, wow, it's so light. I don't feel like I just you know ate a double chocolate Mississippi mud pie, that feeling you get. Oh. Yeah, because yeah, you're already... You know, I mean, we always try to put like a couple hours in between dessert and dinner on Thanksgiving. Everybody lays on the couch, relaxes, chills out. You know, they have all their chattering out of their system, so to speak. And and then you break out the the cake or the pie or whatever. Um, backing up a little bit, though, we didn't talk about cranberry sauce. Like the first time I made, I, I don't, this is another one of these things, I don't make because nobody eats it but me. 
But the first time I learned to make fresh cranberry sauce, I was like, that's it? And, you know, I'll never buy canned cranberry sauce again. You want to talk about how to do that? I mean, it takes like 10 minutes. Yeah, no, that's um, that's one uh, I remember sometimes. My mom made it once in a while, but usually you saw that canned um, shape blob jelly of that thing. jelly nasty stuff on the table. Um, but making it is dead simple. You just go and buy, and you, you know, if you've got a pretty good crowd, over 10 people, buy two bags. Usually they're sold in one pound, you know, ocean spray cranberries. You take the cranberries and you, you want a, a Dutch oven or a good, you know, pretty big sauce pot with a tight fitting lid. You dump them in there. You take an orange with a zester and you zest off the orange zest, trying not to get any of the white part. You throw the zest in there. You cut the orange in half, squeeze the juice out, straining, make sure you don't get any seeds in there. And then I would put about um, one cup, if you've got two bags, one cup of just plain sugar would go in there. And then you want to season it up. I like to do uh, cinnamon, nutmeg, and fresh nutmeg, where I'll take the nutmeg in the pod and I'll scrape it against the microplane. Fresh nutmeg. And then I like a teeny, teeny, teeny tinch of uh, clove powder. You put that in there. Um, turn it on high. Wait until it comes to a boil. Stir it around really well, cover it, turn it down to super low, let it cook about 30 minutes. Once it's cooked about 30 minutes, take the top off and then um, move it off the burner and it's, it's going to be thick and super hot and very viscous. Let it chill out for about 30 minutes and then take that uh, potato masher, just go in there and mash down and you're going to have um, a beautiful, chunky, and just wonderful uh, cranberry sauce, and that's another recipe that, that I'm fairly well known for is that simple uh, cranberry sauce. But you don't want to bring it to the table hot. So this is something that can be made today, can be made Tuesday before Thanksgiving, <laughs> whatever it might be. Um, but bring it to the table, you know, room temperature or even chilled slightly, and that is a great foil. Now, people don't understand the kind of, you know, you mentioned the, the biology of it all, but when you're eating, you know, dark turkey meat and gravy and potatoes with cream and butter. You've got a lot of fat and heavy flavors. If you've got something like cranberry that's um, a little bit sour, it's got that uh, citrus thing going on there, it's a little little cranberry-like, that really helps to balance things out. So a little bite of that with your, your turkey, that's why it goes so well. But that, Yeah, that's on that note, like, like what you said was really important is it can be a little chilled, it can be room temperature, but not ice cold. And I I think that there's two things that make people that would like some cranberry sauce with their Thanksgiving meal say they don't like it. One is the only thing they've ever experienced is that Jell-O can. And two is whenever they've had it, even if it's been properly made, it's come out like at 37 degrees. And it just it's off-putting, I think. Yeah, it is, and it doesn't taste like much because, you know, uh, if you look at any type of food, particularly cheese, if you take cheese, take it out of the refrigerator, cut it and eat it compared to cheese that's been sitting out at room temperature, the difference is night and day. No no proper European that serves cheese is going to serve it cold because it doesn't you know, bloom, it doesn't uh, expand in your mouth. And a lot of eating pleasures, when you put something into your mouth, your taste buds are tasting it, but the aromas are also going up the back into your nose. And if it's cold... Not a lot of aromas come off, so you, you don't want it ice cold, um, like you said. But yeah, if it's the proper temperature, it uh, it 
it's awesome. And, and it's the same thing here. My kids don't really eat it. My wife eats it a little bit. I eat it. And, you know, this year we're not going to have any guests over. Uh, yeah. This is the first year in a long time that we don't have any guests. So I'm even wondering if I even – I might just skip it this year. That's what I'm thinking too because if nobody's going to eat it, then, you know – the last time I made it, I forgot I made it because I made it a couple of days in advance. So I ended up like Friday morning going, oh, yeah. Um, and it's it's too bad, you know. That's why I like big crowds for Thanksgiving. Then somebody will eat a little bit of everything at least, you know. Right. Uh, on that note, so like flavor profiles, so let's, let's kind of finish off with some suggestions on wines. Um, a lot of people don't drink a lot or don't drink often, but a lot of people that don't even drink very often will have a glass of wine on Thanksgiving. Um, it's just kind of part of the whole merriment thing. So what are some thoughts on different wines? Yeah, and that's, um, you know, wines are kind of like politics and religion. I mean, there's, uh, <laughs> there's, there's so many different, different ways. And having spend, spent a lot of time in France in uh, really kind of very popular wine regions with people that know far more about wine than I do and seeing, I mean, I know this one guy, he's got 5,000 bottles in his, in, his, Holy crap. in his wine cave in the basement. And I play more than my house. Yeah, I mean, this guy's <laughs> basement, man, the walls were three feet thick, and it was 100, 102 outside, and you went down there, it was like 58 degrees underneath. But um, a lot of people have different opinions on that, and I've seen it go all over the board. Um, but for me personally, uh, sweet wines tend to be very popular around Thanksgiving, you know, the, the German white sweet wines. And again, that's because they're bright tasting and it tends to balance out well with all the heavy things. But for me, I would prefer um, probably a Pinot Noir or something, or even um, a good Zinfandel. I'm not talking $2 a bottle Zinfandel, but more like a 10 or $12 red Zinfandel or a nice um, Pinot would be, for me, really good with the meal. But I know a lot of people that we've had Thanksgiving with are pretty uh, staunch defenders of the Gewurztraminer, you know, the the sort yeah. of uh, overly sweet German wine that comes in a blue bottle. Yeah, but I think yeah, I like the Beaujolais um, from the Gamay grape for Thanksgiving. That's very traditional, and it's not expensive. It's a good bottle of its twelve box. Yeah, that's another good one. It's it's fruity and kind of light. It's sort of similar to to Zinfandel. <laughs> If you want to keep the cost down on the Zin, there's a, 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 a I don't know if you call it a Vinter uh, a brand, I guess, because it's really not the Vinter. I'm not sure who makes it, but it's it's an old vine Zin, and it's called Gnarly Head. And the vines that it's made from are like 100-year-old vines. So the trellises are gone on this vineyard. Um, so the vines are like self-supporting at this point because they're so damn big. And uh, it's it's pretty daggone good, and it's it's a twelve dollar bottle of wine. It's not like you know a fifty dollar bottle of wine. So yeah, a, I know the one you're talking of. It is pretty tasty. Yeah, and I think the big thing is like so. There's like you talk about wine being like politics, and that was kind of where I want to angle this. Right, so there are people that say like the Beaujolais is that's what goes with turkey and cranberry and stuffing, and it does pair nicely, right? Or the reverse demeanor. There's other people that come from that school of thought. I think wine is one of those things. Drink what you like. So my philosophy has always been, I find out who's coming. What do you like as far as wine goes, if you, if you like wine? And it, with, you know, 8 to $15 bottles, you can pretty much have something everybody would like a glass of. And if there's extra, you know, usually there's an old uncle or somebody who will drink anything as the football game winds down <laughs> and pass out on the couch. So give people what they like or suggest, you know, I've also found that, like you say, people, if they, people say, well, can I bring anything? And if I'm cooking, I don't really want you to bring food. 
right? Because it just disrupts my whole flow. So if you'd like to bring a bottle of wine, and I, I've found that people generally bring a bottle of wine that they would drink themselves. So that's another way to off that we call uh, outtask, right? Outsource the wine, right? Yeah, no, it's uh, those are all good points with wine, and um, I know a good friend of mine is a dude named Gary Vaynerchuk. He's a wine. Oh yeah, that's right. You got you guys are buddies. Yeah, I was. I've been on his show in in uh, in New Jersey. Uh, we used to have the same publicist in New York City, and and uh, they they booked me on his show, so I was there. And he that dude's a hoot with wine, and it's funny. He's exactly uh, he is no different in person than he is, um, you know, uh, on TV. But he's he has that same approach, man. Drink what you like. Don't listen to the wine snobs. And your point is, you know, with the people always think that it's got to be thirty dollars, a fifty dollar bottle. That doesn't mean jack squat. I mean, I've tasted. $50 bottles of wine that, uh, man, made me throw up there so bad. So yeah. it really doesn't have much to do with it. Yeah, it's it's all about the quality of the end product. I've had some expensive bottles of wine that are really nice wines, but I've had some, you know, $9, $10 bottles. I mean, to be fair to even low-end producers, some of the wines like at Trader Vixit or Trader Joe's and all that are $3, $4 bottles, they're not terrible wines. They're not great wines, but they're not terrible if you just wanted a a glass of wine to go with a random everyday deal. I try to amp it up a little bit for a special day like Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner or something like that. But um, drink what you like and, and serve your guests what they like. I mean, it, there's a lot of people out there that the only wine they even know exists is Chardonnay. So, you know, Kendall Jackson, Vinters Reserves, 10 bucks, 12 bucks a bottle. It's a nice Chardonnay, a little bit oaky. Throw a bottle out in the refrigerator, and if they turn their nose up at everything, yank it out and serve that but your red wines guys do not put those in the refrigerator yeah they just don't belong there yeah i've always it, wondered about those uh those uh wine coolers that people have loaded with uh red wine that's another thing if it's if it's ice cold it doesn't taste like anything it needs to definitely be warm yeah i'll finish up with a, a, a funny story on one of these wine people like you're talking about that had like this guy had a wine cellar literally worth more than my home and he had traveled all over the world sampling wines italy was his you know Real, like that was his home turf to go to. And we're at a Ruth Chris down in Orlando, Florida, and we have a bunch of, there's like contractors, all this is back in my, my sales days. And I'm in the bathroom. This guy's voice is so loud, he makes me sound quiet, right? And you could hear him through the whole restaurant. Not obnoxious, just that projecting voice. And he was talking about the glasses they had there, these big, bold, deep riddles glasses. And the reason it was important when you have a red wine is that everybody has a dominant nostril, just like you have a dominant hand. And if your whole nose isn't in the glass, you won't take in that aroma. You won't get the full flavor. And since everybody has a dominant nostril, if you build this big glass, no matter what side they drink it from, they're going to get this aroma of the wine. And I, I'm, you know, I'm in the restroom and I can hear this. I open the door and I walk out. And there had to be 30 tables I could see. Every single person was holding up a glass and sniffing it once with each nostril, looking at each other and nodding their heads. And I was just like, only Al. Only Al could cause that to happen. But, uh, man, I appreciate you being with us today. I know this is the busy time of year for you. Do you got anything going on that you want to tell people about before we wrap up as far as, like, because you have, like, by the way, props on the freaking curry seasoning for the chicken. Oh, sweet. I know that's not what we're talking about today, but, man, and I've been meaning to order some of that from you, and I just haven't gotten around to it. But I made chicken with that up at the Fall Festival at Perma Ethos, and, and Nick Ferguson and I did all the chicken grilling, and by the time I got from the grill with the last bits of it, because it was, it was tons of chicken we were cooking. So you end up trying to get everything done. 
it was almost all gone. I think I got two wings, and that was all that was left with the curry. Yeah. Uh, and this is from people that are going, oh, it tastes like a di- Indian diaper on your face or whatever when you make curry. Well, as soon as they ate that, uh, all of a sudden they were pretty hip on it. So that was the bomb. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the curry. Stuff. It's really good. Well, find a new seasoning since the last time you were on. Yeah, we've got a, a lemon pepper seasoning. We've got the new curry. Um, we've got also some teas in stock now that are really popular. We've got a, they're all organic chamomile. We've got a lemongrass tea and a really good green tea. Uh, I'll throw some of those in your box um, when the next one goes out to you. Those are delicious. But, yeah, the curry has been very popular with people. I uh, also have a new beef seasoning that we're, we're doing, and um, a soup seasoning is coming as well. But the other night we had curry, and it was, it was super simple. It was chicken thighs, um, coconut milk, lemongrass, and uh, some of my curry seasoning, let it all simmer together with some vegetables over over jasmine rice. Very nice, very nice. How about that prime rib rub? Yeah, that, that one is. That's something I haven't tried yet. Yeah, that's terrific. That that also is. Um, I'm watching that one uh, sell pretty well. That that's great for prime rib, uh, roast beef. Like as a matter of fact, today um, when I'm done, I'm going to take a. a nice um, end round roast or some bottom round roast rather and rub it with the prime rib and slow roast it to make some roast beef. So uh, yeah, that's awesome. And and you know what? I'm happy that people are really getting onto the Greek seasoning now. They, uh, that, that one was a slow seller for, for a few years, but enough people have tasted it and, and they email me all the time and using the Greek seasoning. And that one is really, really good. I love, do you use the Greek at all? I'd use it some. I I like I, I happen to like the, uh, the the just the roasted chicken or uh, grilled chicken the grilled chicken yeah uh, a little better myself um, probably because I bought so damn much of that <laughs> it's there in the pantry now um, that I haven't really jumped on board the Greek train yet but I'll give it a, another shot but I like I'll tell you the one my go to is Northern Italian. Yeah, I use uh, that every day. Nothing you can't grab a pinch of that and and hit with it. It's the porcini mushroom in there is like people that say they don't like mushrooms because there's something unique about this. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you because then you're going to tell me you don't like it, right? <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, I thought that. I know you've ever noticed that with people like you know they they say they don't like something, they eat something, they like it, and they find out what they didn't like was in there, and then all of a sudden, uh, oh yeah, I knew that. No, you didn't. Yeah, it's funny. My father-in-law, he's he's English and. He proclaims from the top of buildings that he hates garlic and he wouldn't eat anything with garlic in it. And every time I'm there, I do most of the cooking. And if, if oh, there's garlic, some, yeah, I'll load it down with garlic. And, oh, this is delicious, Keith. He absolutely loves it. But yeah, yeah. No, that the northern Italian, I use that literally every day. It's uh, I keep a really big tub of that in one of my, my slide-out drawers. My wife and I were together for I think maybe three years, and I said something about cooking, and I said I need to get some garlic, and she's like, we don't like garlic. And I'm like, well, I've been with you three years, and I cook everything with garlic. She's like, really? I'm like, yeah. I mean, I'm like, there's no time I'm cooking anything that involves meat, potatoes, vegetables that are being sautéed, roasted, stir-fried, whatever, that garlic's not in there. <laughs> She's like, you mean like garlic powder? I'm like, oh, no. So where did you think all these garlic bowls were going? <laughs> you know, she just doesn't pay attention when you're cooking. I'll tell you the other thing she likes is um, your sauces, right? You have one, which one is it? I want the creamy basil pesto. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, it's a great sauce, but she did the thing you told me about, which is like uh, a cup of that to like a cup of uh, chicken broth and like a soup. Yeah, yeah. She's you, nuts about that. Man. Yeah, no. A lot of people um, say they can't have uh, tomato sauce because it bothers their stomach, and that's because most 
not all, but most of the commercial sauces have a high amount of tomato paste in them, and they've got a very low acid. Now, this, mm-hmm. uh, this sauce, it's got organic, heavy cream into it, and uh, all the tomatoes are you know, fresh chopped tomatoes from California and with fresh herbs. And, and that's been one that I've heard, I don't know, a dozen people since we've released that say, you know, I can't eat. And this was just recently. Our, a neighbor of mine said that, oh, no, my husband, I like pasta sauce, but he can't eat it. And, and he did try that. And that one doesn't seem to bother people's stomach because, uh, number one, it doesn't have any uh, slow and long cooked tomato paste, but it also has that beautiful cream in there. And uh, buffers it. Yeah, it buffers it a bit. Th- those have been super successful, the uh, Thoughtful Harvest pasta sauces. And I don't do a lot of seafood cooking, but my buddy Brian from ITS Tactical, I gave him, like, one year, I gave him, like, five of your different spices as a Christmas present. And it was, like, I think about three months later, he calls me and he goes, that freaking chef buddy of yours doesn't have any of that seafood stuff in stock. Get on his ass. And I'm like... Uh, you know, dude, uh, stuff goes out of stock, but he's, he's madly in love with the seafood season. Yeah, I've got that in stock and that one was out of stock for a while. And, you know, these products, they're specialty products and the, the company that, um, mixes them for me, they won't mix it. There's no such thing as substituting an ingredient because they have, they have a certification, uh, program there where they've got somebody from the USDA at the plant daily. Nothing can come in the door that's not Oregon tied certified and USDA certified. And they also don't buy anything on the open market. So every single ingredient that I source, they have a contract with a grower that they visited multiple uh, times and they, they you know so everything is grown under contract. When something goes out of season or out of stock, I can't get it. But I do have the um a big shipment of seafood seasoning in stock. And I, think, I, I think I know who you're talking about because I remember. Yeah, Brian Black, man. Yeah, he, he's he's pretty hip on that. I use it when I make – I do a crab cake recipe that it's – I mean, the, the recipe is like the recipe everybody makes, and it calls for Old Bay, and it's like, no. <laughs> it's like the one place I go off the reservation with it, but it's like – it's not complicated. It's it's on the back of the crab meat can. Um, but your seasoning just kind of really makes it pop, and I think I add like a handful of, of – um, of, Hot peppers, chopped hot peppers, not super hot, but like a jalapeno or something like that, a handful of celery is the only addition that I put to it. And they come out fantastic with that seasoning. And I guess as we wrap up here, you know, this is a great gift. I mean, a lot of these seasonings are, you know, in a can and they're, they pack it, they're packaged nice, they look nice, they smell nice, they make great food. You know, a single can's about 14 bucks. So you can do a lot of your Christmas shopping at Harvest Eating if you uh, want to spread good food and, like Keith was saying, it's all organic, it's all fair trade, it's all kosher, uh, it's all from you know small growers, etc. So uh, it'd be a great place to uh, to do things. You got a little uh, sale going or something right now? Yeah, uh, I was going to say for your TSP people that um, they get a regular discount of fifteen percent off. Right now we're we're running a you know the Black Friday type deal. It's twenty five percent off, and you just need the coupon code Surf S U R F like surfing. So if you put in syrup, it'll save you 25%. And that's for everybody, not just MSB, obviously, because yep. we just said it. But, hey, man, thank you for being with us today, dude. Hey, happy Thanksgiving, Jack. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico along with Chef Keith Snow, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's in our food these days. You know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do If 
Revolution is you.